Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you rise. Love God and love one another. This is the essence of what we are about when we meet together in the name of Christ. We're going to join together now in our prayers of approach. And after I have led us in a prayer, we will join together in saying the Lord's Prayer. And our custom and practice here at Hillhead is that we say the Lord's Prayer in whichever version and whichever language is most natural for us. So we will have some Yoruba, we will have some Welsh, we will have some English, we will have some other languages because there will be people who speak other languages. But if you don't know that prayer at all, when we get to that point, if you look at the screen, a version of it in English will appear. So let's come to God in our prayers of praise and adoration. Let's pray together. God of all creation, we gather today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, drawn by the invisible touch of your Holy Spirit to bring you our praises and prayers. Though we cannot see you, Though your voice is heard only vicariously through others, though we cannot reach out and touch you, we know that you are here with us, and we're glad. We're glad that there's nothing about us that you don't already know. So there is no fear of embarrassment, no need to pretend we are anything we're not. Instead, we allow ourselves to be enfolded in the gentle embrace of your love and to be cleansed and healed through your grace. God of all creation, please help us to listen for your voice in stories and songs, prayers and praises. And please help us not only to listen, but to understand. And not only to understand, but to respond. Taking the next step on the path of life. Following in the footsteps of Jesus, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. The first of our two readings this morning is from Leviticus chapter 25. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai 
and commanded him to give the following regulations to the people of Israel. When you enter the land that the Lord is giving you, you shall honour the Lord by not cultivating the land every seventh year. You shall plant your fields, prune your vineyards, and gather your crops for six years. But the seventh year is to be a year of complete rest for the land, a year dedicated to the Lord. Do not plant your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not even harvest the grain that grows by itself without being planted. And do not gather the grapes from your unpruned vines. It is a year of complete rest for the land. Although the land has not been cultivated during that year, it will provide food for you, your slaves, your hired men, the foreigners living with you, your domestic animals and the wild animals in your fields. Everything that it produces may be eaten. Count seven times seven years, a total of 49 years. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement, Send someone to blow a trumpet throughout the whole land. In this way, you shall set the fiftieth year apart and proclaim freedom to all the inhabitants of the land. During this year, all property that has been sold shall be restored to the original owner or the descendants, and any who have been sold as slaves shall return to their families." And from the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, at verse 23. Jesus was walking through some wheat fields on the Sabbath. As his disciples walked along with him, they began to pick the heads of wheat. So the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, it is against our law for your disciples to do that on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did that time when he needed something to eat? He and his men were hungry, so he went into the house of God and ate the bread offered to God. This happened when Abiathar was the high priest. According to our law, only the priests may eat this bread. But David ate it and even gave it to his men. And Jesus concluded, The Sabbath was made for the good of human beings. They were not made for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Then Jesus went back to the synagogue, where there was a man who had a paralyzed hand. Some people were there who wanted to accuse Jesus of doing wrong. So they watched him closely to see whether he would cure the man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man, Come up here to the front. Then he asked the people, What does our law allow us to do on the Sabbath? To help or to harm? To save someone's life or to destroy it? But they did not say a thing. Jesus was angry as he looked around at them, but at the same time he felt sorry for them because they were so stubborn and wrong. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, 
and it became well again. So the Pharisees left the synagogue and met at once with some members of Herod's party, and they made plans to kill Jesus. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, and as we reach the the last Sunday before the beginning of Lent, so we're going to finish looking at the first part of Mark's Gospel. Um, I thought I would start off today, though, with something a little bit lighter. We're going to have a quiz to start off with. Uh, Ten questions, and we'll see what your knowledge is like on any of these things. Okay. Question number one. Is it lawful to go to a barber or a hairdresser for a haircut in Scotland on a Sunday? Yes or no? Yeah, some yeses and some noes. Okay. Well, it is yes, but does anybody know when the law changed to allow that? You're looking shocked. It was 1994. Prior to 1994, it would have been illegal to get your hair cut in Scotland on a Sunday, unless your mum did it. Okay. For how many hours is it lawful for large stores in England and Wales to be open on a Sunday? Ken's the expert here. That's correct, Ken. It is six hours. Please come and join us. Um, does anybody know when those six hours are? Well, ten till four is quite... This is, he thinks he's got it right, but actually he hasn't. <laughs> ten till four is typical. That is absolutely true. Ten thirty till four thirty is quite popular. There is a, a window between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. during which... These shops are allowed to be, large stores are allowed to be open in England and Wales on a Sunday. Small stores can be open longer. Okay, question number three. In Northern Ireland, I noticed Holly's disappeared, so I can't verify this one. In Northern Ireland, is it permitted for large stores to open on a Sunday morning? Somebody up there has said no. That's correct. Um, The opening hours laws in Northern Ireland um, require people to have plenty of time to go to church and get home first before the shops are allowed to open. And typically it's between 1pm and 6pm that large stores are open. So you can go to Tesco's pretty much any time you like on a Sunday in Scotland, between 10.30 and 4.30 typically in England, and not until after dinner in Northern Ireland. So, which part of the UK do you think has the least restrictive Sunday trading hours? I've just actually told the answer to that one. Scotland, yep. Scotland has by far the least restrictive Sunday trading hours in the UK. Which kinds of fish, or two kinds of fish, is it illegal to catch on a Sunday in Scotland? Salmon is one of them, yep. And what's the other one? Sorry? Haddock? No, it's not haddock. Good try. No, it's not cod. It's a particular kind of trout, yeah. Salmon and sea trout, it is illegal to catch in Scotland on a Sunday. Okay. Number six. Which ferry company had a long struggle to be allowed to sail to Lewis and Harris on a Sunday? Caledonian. <laughs> Amazing everybody knows that one, isn't it? Yeah. Caledonian, but Brain or Calmac. Okay. Slight change of direction now. If you are an Orthodox Jew and you go outside on Shabbat, the Sabbath, when it's raining, are you allowed to wear a raincoat and put up an umbrella? 
Now we've got some mixed answers here. Well, you can put your raincoat on, that's okay, because putting on clothes doesn't count as work. But you can't put up an umbrella, because technically that counts as pitching a tent. Because a lot of the rules, let's not laugh at them because it's somebody else's culture, a lot of the rules go back to the days of the tabernacle. So putting up an umbrella is like putting a tent over your head. Are Orthodox Jews allowed to put out house fires on a Shabbat, the Sabbath? Do you think? Your house caught fire and you're Jewish, are you allowed to put it out on a Saturday? Quite a lot of yeses. Actually, no. Not unless somebody is stuck inside and their life is at risk. You are allowed to save life. You are not allowed to save property. Okay. There's one just to see if anybody knows any slightly more complicated things about modern Judaism. The creation of an, I think it's an Eruv, I think that's how you pronounce it, E-R-U-V. A wire fence around a Jewish community serves what purpose? So a wire fence around a Jewish community, what purpose does it serve serve in relation to the Shabbat laws, the Sabbath laws? You all look puzzled. So this is, this is a great one, I think. It's um, a real um, indication of how people have adapted to a changing society. Basically, by making this fence around your community, your community is one house. And therefore... If you need to walk down the road to somebody and it's more steps than you're allowed to walk on the Sabbath otherwise, then you can because you've created a house. It's a practical way of abiding with the letter of the law. Okay, last question. Hands up answer to this one. Would you travel by public transport or taxi or go to a cafe or a restaurant on a Sunday? If the answer is yes, put your hand up. If the answer is no, put your hand up. It's the interesting. Yeah, we all do these things on a Sunday, and that's fine. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, so don't panic. Just interesting to think about what is or isn't lawful on a Sunday, on the Sabbath, and why. To this very day in Judaism, there are 39 melachot. I think that's how you say it. You have to have a proper Scottish in there. Uh, classes of labor that are prohibited on Shabbat. And typically they can be divided into six groups depending on which part of the work of the tabernacle or the mishkan, to use their word, they relate to. So field work is prohibited, which includes reaping, threshing, kneading and baking bread. Making fabric curtains is prohibited, so you can't spin, dye, weave or knot. Making leather curtains is prohibited, so you can't trap, slaughter animals or tan their hides. The making of beams, um, which includes writing and erasing, is actually prohibited. Putting up and taking down the mishkan, the tabernacle, so that's where the umbrella comes in, building up and tearing down is prohibited on the Shabbat. And then this last class, which is a great name, The finishing touches, or the final touches, which includes lighting a fire, putting out a fire, or carrying things. And a lot of really serious endeavour is expended by Jewish people to reinterpret these rules in a world of relentless change. And even as we hear the examples I've just said, we can tell that the Sabbath then was very different 
from our idea of what a Sunday used to be like. People talk about it. The good old days when on a Sunday afternoon you'd sit and write your letters to your auntie or you'd do your knitting or your embroidery or make a jigsaw. But you see, actually, if you were an Orthodox Jew, can't do any of those because they are forbidden. And so Jews have tried to reflect the way that society has changed, that we now live in huge, sprawling areas. So the Erev wire means that people can go and visit their next-door neighbour. They have got challenges that they can overcome. But it's still a genuine challenge for good Jewish people to work out what you can or cannot do on the Sabbath. And I honestly think that's something that we as Christians can never fully grasp because it's not our way of being. Shabbat within Judaism is understood as being a taste of the world to come. And certainly there are some Jews who believe that if one Sabbath is perfectly observed, the Messianic age will begin. The story is told of a young man who spoke to a rabbi and said they thought this Shabbat had been observed perfectly and surely Messiah would now come. And the rabbi looked out of the window and saw a dog chase a cat and said, no, not yet. But as we come to read these stories recorded by Mark, we need to keep in mind that the Pharisees are not bad people. The Pharisees are devout, law-abiding people doing their very best to get it right. Sabbath observance was something uniquely part of Jewish culture that set them apart from their Gentile neighbours. In some ways, it was a way of defining who was in and who was out, a visible thing that would say, well, yep, they must be one of us because they behave our way. And so it could not fail to be shocking and disturbing when the way that Jesus behaved seemed to blur that distinction. And Mark's gospel gives us two examples of this. Firstly, we have Jesus and his disciples walking through a field of grain on a Sabbath, and the disciples are plucking the ears of wheat as they go along. In the parallel stories, Matthew and Luke elaborate on this, providing a reason why they did it. They said they were hungry and a purpose for it. They rubbed their ears with their hands and ate them. And that allows scholars very easily to legitimate the comparison with David and his companions eating the priest's bread. After all, Jesus' named disciples have given up their livelihoods in order to follow him. And so all they're actually doing is meeting their human needs, which actually is kind of allowed on the Sabbath. It's a valid deduction, but I'm not entirely convinced that it's present in what Mark says. Because actually, with what Mark said, they could just have been strolling through the fields, plucking ears of corn, in the way that I would pluck flowers or bits as I walked through a field. Perhaps there's another explanation which seems to sit a bit more closely to what Mark says and it's this David's followers David's men put their allegiance to him ahead of legal niceties 
And that could be what happens here with Jesus' disciples. And that's quite challenging to hear, isn't it? They put their allegiance to Jesus ahead of legal niceties. Do you remember that phrase, what would Jesus do? It doesn't seem to be quite so popular now. You don't see so many kids walking around with WWJD bands on their arms. But yeah, you know, what would Jesus do? Because what he did here didn't fit with what would be expected. It was Sabbath. You didn't go through the fields and pluck corn on the Sabbath. That was just not right. Sometimes following Jesus requires us to be a little unorthodox if we set his principles ahead of a kind of legalistic observance to normal practice. I think we had an example of here last summer. Do you remember the Commonwealth Games cycle race? That day when it never stopped raining and it was cold and wet and miserable. And we said, we're not going to have a morning service this day. We're going to live stream the race. We put a big screen up on the stage and showed the cycle race from 8.30 in the morning till 5 o'clock at night. And we we invited people to come in and, and use the loos. And we gave them cups of tea and coffee and cake and biscuits. And they said, well, well why are you doing this? And we said, because we want to. Because we think this is what the right thing to do. And a few of them kind of pushed a little bit further. And it's like, well, you know, we're kind of followers of Jesus. And this is what we think that he would have been doing if the cycle race had gone past his synagogue. I think he'd have not been in there reading scripture. He'd have been offering bread that he probably made on a Sunday when no one was looking. Sometimes, just sometimes, not as a general rule, but sometimes, there is something that more profoundly expresses the principles of Sabbath or resurrection or faith and hope than singing the hymns or listening to the sermons, no matter how good the hymns or the sermons might be. Sabbath is God's gift to humankind. God didn't create us for the purpose of fulfilling a set of rituals on one day a week. Jesus and his followers gives us an example of a different way of understanding Sabbath that might be more in tune with what God said. That sometimes what is needed is more deep and more wonderful and more shocking and more amazing than we expect. Because ritual and religion of themselves cannot bring in the messianic age, the kingdom of God. Rather, if our hearts are tuned into this Sabbath principle, the principle of Sabbath as healing and restoration, not just for humans, but for the whole of creation, then we begin to grasp what it's about and it affects the way we behave. And so we move on to the second story. It takes place in a synagogue, a gathering place. And the spies are there waiting to see what Jesus might do that could trap himself. They are getting increasingly resentful and bitter. And they see Jesus having dinner with the wrong kind of people and saying the wrong things and walking through fields on a Sabbath, for goodness sake. So they're there and they're watching. And there in the synagogue is a man with a withered hand. I don't know what he looks like in your head. In my head, he's always been an older man. 
who's gone there faithfully for decades. It doesn't say that. That's just a picture in my head. And Jesus says, um, you, come on, out to the front. And he's got no real choice but to do that. And I wonder what earth was going through that poor man's head as he walked forwards. Every eye swiveled round to watch him. Did he have a clue that Jesus might heal him? But, but hang on a minute, this was the Shabbat, so no, that couldn't possibly happen. So what was Jesus calling him out for? This poor man must have felt desperately exposed and desperately vulnerable, but he came out and stood with Jesus. And Jesus spoke to the people and he said, I've got a question for you. Does the law allow us to what sorry, what does the law allow us to do on the Sabbath? To help or to harm? Well, actually that was a pretty stupid question. Because everybody knew fine well that there were strict guidelines on what constituted help on the Sabbath and what you could do. And if somebody was in immediate danger of death, of course, you not only could, but you should help them. But frankly, in the middle of Sunday service, nobody was in any immediate danger. And Jesus looked around with a mixture of anger and sadness flooding his entire being because not one person would answer him. They were silent, tongue-tied, frightened of saying the wrong thing. So Jesus looked at the man and said, stretch out your hand. And as he did so, he was healed. He became well again. For the Jewish people of Jesus' day, saving life was a fundamental standard used to define good and evil on a Sabbath. So, was life saved on that day? Well, if we say, was the man in immediate peril of death? Clearly, no, life was not saved on that day. But what if we use a different measure? What if life is about hope, about opportunity, about freedom, about self-worth? If that's a definition of life, then yes, life was given on that day to that man. Oh dear, poor religious people. The very right thing, the adherence to the letter of the law, became the wrong thing because the intent of the law was met in an unorthodox fashion. And by now, some of them were so angry and so resentful and so undermined and so afraid that they began to plot to destroy this man with his rebellious ideas and his dodgy practices. I do wonder, if I'm really honest, when is it that I find myself in their position? When is it that I get more concerned about the right behaviour and the right rituals than the right attitudes and the right actions?
And not just when do I, but when do we do that? And if we think we don't, then actually we do, because by default that's kind of what it means. I'm going unusually to read some words for you from one of the commentaries I read this week that seemed to put things quite well. It says this. Healing the sick, forgiving the sinner, sharing a table with toll collectors and sinners, feasting rather than fasting, and his authority over the Sabbath all point to an implicit claim of something special in his work. Jesus was announcing the coming of God's sovereign rule in history, the fulfillment of time, the dawn of the day of salvation as promised in the scriptures. Jesus was not only healing a crippled hand, he was bringing wholeness and new life in a relationship with God befitting the age of this salvation. In this sense, he was saving life. I don't know about you, but as I read those words, I detected something utterly Jewish in all of that. The Sabbath as a glimpse of the eschatological hope. Something achieved not by ritualized observance, but a profound sense of what the law really demands. Rest for humanity. Rest for the fields. Rest for the wild places, all with the aim of restoration, renewal and refreshment. And all of this is a foretaste of the fulfilled kingdom of God, the new creation. It was all there in Leviticus. But these well-intentioned people had lost sight of the vision as they worried about their own pious practices. Whatever we do or don't do on a Sunday, whether we ride on buses or go to the cinema or go to the park or knit or sew or finish DIY projects, whatever it is, and however we feel about Sunday trading or professional sport taking place on Sundays, I think these stories encourage us to ask ourselves again, why did God give us this gift of Sabbath? And how can we use Sabbath in line with God's intent. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let us unite in prayer. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, we come together today to worship you and have joyously brought before you for blessing a new soul, another child to swell the ranks of your family on earth. Not all of us here are privileged to have children and know the hopes for the future invested in them, but we can still empathise because all of us, all of us, are the children of parents and are aware that once great hopes were invested in us. We proudly boast that you are our divine parent and therefore dare to ask that you grant our prayers. As a congregation, we have asked that you bless this child, Esther, 
And now we ask that you bless all the children of our troubled world, children whose names we do not know, but yet we are confident you know them. Give us the strength to do your will in shaping a good future for these children as if each and every one was our own flesh and blood. Yesterday was Valentine's Day, a day which celebrates the love you proclaimed, albeit in its romantic vein, but love in all its aspects is part of the divine love. Everywhere you looked yesterday, there were quotations about love, some banal, some profound, some by great poets, some by songsmiths. One of the simplest, celebrating human love, yet managed to sum up your divine love. Forgive me if I quote. I'll be loving you always, with a love that's true always. Not for just an hour, not for just a day, not for just a year, but always. The great Irving Berlin was truly inspired when he wrote those words. They can apply to love between two individuals, between parents and their child, between you and us. Love made manifest when our Lord went to the cross, driven by that very love to sacrifice himself for our redemption from sin and death. Today, we are happily celebrating a new life. But in the past few weeks, our spirits have sunk, as we have seen and heard, of fearful things, great tragedies in our global home, near and afar. And more intimately, we have lost several beloved friends from our own close circle. And yet, and yet, love remains. To slightly misquote the poet Wordsworth, Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendour in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not for what cannot be recaptured, rather find strength in what remains behind. Love remains behind, and love remembered is powerful indeed. And so, Lord, we pray that you remind us of your love, which, like a parent, forgives us for our weaknesses, our failures, and yet continues to hope we can learn from our mistakes and do better. The message of Bethlehem we see born anew in the eyes of every child in our midst. Dear Lady and Mother of Humankind, we pray that you help us to defeat prejudices of race and religion, restore a balance of equality in commerce and health, 
in education and politics in justice. Help us, we pray, to help the children of our world stand up and proudly walk into a better, brighter future. A future in which your command, love your neighbour as yourself, is obeyed as the lawful norm every hour of the day, every day of the week, every week of the year, every year of our lives, always. All this divine parent we ask in the name of your own dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May God bless us, and through us bless those we meet in the days ahead, with gifts of grace, mercy and love, as we live out the Sabbath truths of restoration and recreation in this place we call home, now and always. Mm -hmm.